but I had started looking at John 17 last month. We did the first 13 verses of John 17, the high priestly prayer, and then we're going to do the second portion, the second 13 verses this morning, and I've kept the same title, The Unifying Power of God's Love, and this is the second part, because the, the whole chapter works towards this big idea that we'll continue to uh, unpack. But just, just for a point of context, all right, John 17 is occurring during that upper room discourse, okay? Jesus, it's the week of the Passion, the Passion Week, all right, Jesus has already entered into Jerusalem, uh, it's, it's Thursday evening, the evening before his crucifixion, and he's gathered his disciples into that upper room to enjoy the Last Supper. In fact, we observe communion in remembrance of this evening Jesus had with his disciples. And so it's very fitting that we're looking at the high priestly prayer, which would have been prayed after he had had dinner with his disciples, uh, but, but supported what he would, the mission of that farewell address that evening. And so as a point of review, we've seen uh, really the upper room discourse in, in John picks up in chapter 13 and goes through chapter 17. It's during this uh, meeting with his disciples where he is pro uh, prophesies or predicts his betrayal uh, by Judas. Um, this is where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. This is also the moment where he reminds them that he is the truth, the life, and the way. He talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit during this time. And then uh, he transitions from the promise of sending the Holy Spirit and telling them that he's about to die, about to go to heaven, into this prayer. And what we looked at last week was this prayer really started off with a focus on the union between the Father and the Son. In the first few verses, that's the highlight there. All right, Jesus prays for the Father and Son union and glory. And what's beautiful about this is while the prayer starts off with the emphasis between the Father and the Son, he is praying out loud in the presence of his disciples. The way I kind of portrayed this scene the last time I spoke was to think of it like a farewell address where this man, the husband, is about to go off into battle. And now he's bringing his bride, whom he's about to leave, to his father. He's praying for affirmation in his father's eyes that he has accomplished the mission. What he's doing is the right thing, and this is his father's will and going towards the cross. But as he goes to the cross and knows that he will be separated, in a sense, from his disciples, from his bride, he's also praying that the father would protect his bride while he is away. Just imagine the emotions if this was a portrayal of a son leaving to go to the front lines of a war, of a battle, and all the emotions involved in, in the reality of that departure and the fear of, will those I love be cared for? Will they be protected? And so while Jesus is praying to the Father and about his Father-Son union, he begins to transition that prayer, and he brings, he adds the followers of Jesus. He adds the disciples of Jesus who are there present with him in the room. And he says, 
And he's praying not just for the Father's Son, he's praying for the Father's Son and his followers' union, his disciples' unions, that they will be united. And we talked about this, this unity last time. We talked about how the church is not ultimately united over our building. We're not ultimately united over our vision or our strategy or how great we are, our resources, our power, our skills, our abilities, even our pastors. That's not what we're united around or for. Our unity is only attained and only accomplished by being in union with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. It's only through them. We saw that in verse 13, uh, as well as in verse 12 and 11, all 11 through 13. And those passages said, keep them in your name that they may be one even as we are one. That was the emphasis there on unity within Christ. And one of the beautiful promises from that unity that we looked at last time, it comes up in verse 13, where it says that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus was not looking to only pour his love into us, was not only looking to unify us through the triune love that unified God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He also wanted us to experience his joy. Now, why, why would this be so significant? Okay, It's because what we're going to look at today is that the church will go through trials, just as Jesus went through trials. So our big idea that we focused on last week and we're going to continue to focus on this week is that the love that unites the Trinity is poured out through Jesus to bring unity and joy to his church. I want that big idea to stay at the front of our focus this morning as we continue this time in worship and looking at his word. Why so much focus on unity and joy for his disciples? It's not just our own desires and issues that are attacking our unity, right? There's enough turmoil within me as an individual that that distracts me from remaining united in Christ. No, but there are other aspects of attacks towards the unity within the church, towards the unity within Jesus' followers, the disciples themselves. I mentioned last time the, the series of the chosen depicts the dynamics between the disciples. They are sinners. They are broken. They are competing. In fact, there are multiple passages that talk about them questioning with each other who would be the greatest in Jesus's kingdom. They had pride creeping in. They had different opinions on how things should be done, and that risked breaking up the unity, and Jesus was there amongst them fighting to keep the unity, and unity amongst the disciples was accomplished by being in Jesus, not by being in or of anyone else. It was simply through being in Jesus. And so we see this unity threatened as we pick up reading in, in John 17 with verses 14 through 19. And you can follow along as I, I read these passages in your own Bible. John 17, verses 14 through 19. Jesus says, I have given them, the disciples, your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, 
just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus here is praying for the security of his followers. As I mentioned, he's, he's transitioned the prayer to, to focus on the union between him and the disciples. And one of the aspects of this prayer is progressing for their security. See, in the Jewish culture of that times, a disciple would commit themselves to their rabbi, serving the teacher and learning how to replicate the rabbi's ministry. See, the union between Jesus and the disciples was transforming the very nature of his disciples. They were no longer to be conformed of the world. They were taking on a new identity, a new nature. They were being transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus. Jesus was going inside of them and changing them. And Jesus knew the world had rejected him. He came into a world that was enemies against God, that lifted itself up in rebellion against God. The world wants to be its own ruler. The world wants to be its own authority and do things its own way. We see that battle within our own hearts, right? So often we raise our own fists at God, perhaps at others. We want things done our way. And so the disciples needed protected from the rebellion within their own heart, but also from the fact that as they're changed, they're being changed from the world, and the world, just as it was an enemy towards Jesus, would respond likewise to the disciples. They crucified Jesus, their leader. What would they also try to do to the disciples? And what's beautiful here is we see in these initial verses in, in 14 through 16 is that Jesus is praying to the Father to protect them from the world, okay? Not that he would take them out of the world. So often we pray because we want trials and suffering to be removed from us. Father, remove this trial, remove this situation. But what Jesus is saying, protect them in the presence of the trials, of the challenges, of the battles that they will face with the world. In the end, the world did not want to hear or receive the message of Jesus, the message of redemption, and they would not want to hear it from the disciples either. Jesus' disciples will need his love and his joy from the Father to persevere and endure through the long suffering, the persecution, the resistance, and the trials they will face from the world. These hardships will be exhausting and challenges the very fabric of their faith. So Jesus is praying that the Father will protect them from the world. But it's not just the world that the disciples need protected from. In verse 15, it goes on to say, and, and Jesus is praying that God the Father would protect them, would keep them from the evil one as well. You know, when I consider this particular prayer and request from Jesus, in light of the context where Jesus is praying for the union of the disciples, my conclusion is that Jesus is aware that one of the devil's primary goals and missions is to break apart the union 
of the church. Jesus is honing his prayer in here to what is most critical for his church to be successful in accomplishing his mission, most critical for his disciples in order to continue in their mission. It's not just the world that we need protected from. The very mission of the devil is to create discontentment and division among Christians with their spouses, with their children, with their coworkers, with their friends, their communities, and even with God himself. What does Satan first do when we see him arrive in the scenes after God has created the world? He comes in and he's wanting to sow a seed of doubt in Eve and Adam of God's goodness. He's wanting to create division between man and God. That was his strategy and goal from the beginning. It is still his strategy today. And he's trying to accomplish it in every aspect of the believer's life. And he was definitely attacking the disciples. As children of God, we are hurt often. We are confused and sometimes tempted at hardening our hearts. We sometimes can also contribute to this battle. Sometimes the challenges we face, the attacks come from even within God's very family even from within the church that we are part of. Who here hasn't been hurt by a loved one? If you've never been hurt, you've never loved. If you've never been hurt, you've never been in relationship. You've never trusted. You've never been vulnerable. Jesus is trying to help the disciples to have a realistic perspective of what life will entail if they commit to following him. And that some of these trials and that some of the attacks of the devil are going to look at ripping apart the very fabrics of the family unit in our homes and the family unit in our church. Satan is looking for an angle of fear, perhaps of pride or anger he can use to get a stronghold in our hearts. Our protection from Satan is found in our union with God. That's a source of comfort when you consider the fact that God is significantly more powerful than Satan and that God is sovereign over Satan. Satan is not unleashed with, with no accountability to roam the world and do harm. He cannot function without God's permission. God controls and keeps a leash on Satan, limiting, the Bible says, limiting his ability to persecute, taunt us, and attack us. Praise the Lord for this protection that he has left for us. While Satan looks for these attempts to get a stronghold in our hearts or other places, our protection is found in him. God the Father is constantly working for us to keep us from evil, to keep us from the evil one who attempts at breaking the union between Jesus and his disciples. This is a battle we are fighting every day, and it's a battle we fight when we gather together on a Sunday morning to proclaim truth and to worship him, to affirm our union in Jesus and his power and protection for us. The truth also works. The truth also works to protect us. See, disciples were called to be sanctified by truth. You know, at first glance, it might be more obvious how Jesus intervening can protect us from the evil one. 
But truth itself protects us from the evil one as well. It protects us from this world. Truth found in Jesus and his word given to us through the Bible offers protection. First, we see in verses 17 through 19 that this truth sets the disciples apart for their mission. The disciples will be sanctified by truth, and we see this in, in verse 17. It said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Another way to maybe think of being sanctified is being set apart. As Jesus prepares to depart to, the, to, to leave his disciples, he is setting them apart to continue the mission and the work that he began. Jesus entered into the battle, and now he calls his disciples to follow his example and to continue the fight, to take up their cross and to lay down their life for the mission of proclaiming the gospel and keep unity in the faith, that we would join alongside the Trinity in keeping the unity by being in Jesus Christ through the church. The battle is fierce, and every man, woman, and child must arm themselves with the word of God and take the battle into the streets and to the ends of the world. God desires that all will hear the good news of redemption. He would want that none would perish. And we get to be part of that mission. And it's just a beauty to hear Jesus praying over the disciples as he prepares them for this mission, knowing what is coming. But truth also keeps the disciples on the mission. How many of us have been given a mission at times, and we start off with a lot of zeal, a lot of fervor and excitement and energy, but as the years go on, we start to lose our focus on that mission. We start to become mission drift, all right? Well, the truth was given to us, recorded, written down in Scripture to keep us on mission, so the truth sanctifies us, it sets us apart for the mission, but it also keeps us on mission. It helps us to discern the lies of this world, the lies of the devil. It, it exposes, it brings light to them and exposes them for the fakes that they are. And it teaches us what the genuine love, what genuine fellowship with Jesus is really all about. Truth itself will be at the center of the devil's attack. The devil is going to fight to combat the truth itself. Today in our culture, we want to believe that truth is subjective. Your truth is yours, and my truth is mine. And as long as you respect my truth, I'll respect your truth, right? That becomes problematic when I decide that my truth allows me to run through a red light. <laughs> red means go now in my world. And, uh, and that might not work for everyone else. You see, the world goes into chaos when they abandon truth, when they start calling things something that they are not. We do this within our society when we confuse a child or an individual, and we try to affirm that they're a man when God created them a woman, or that they're a woman when God created them a man. That's confusing. That's not helpful. That's not speaking truth. We need to make sure that we are equipped with God's word to address these attacks. Jesus' words are truth because he is truth. Jesus is the rock, the foundation that we sing about. The gospel in his church is built on Jesus and his accomplishment through the cross and his power in the resurrection. And Jesus has promised his truth will not return void. 
how encouraging it is to be sent on a mission where you know you will be successful. There are many things I take on, even here within the church ministry, that I'm not always confident it will end in success from the eyes or perspective of the world or others or even myself. Uh, we have some events coming up, like the community yard sale. I have a vision for what that will accomplish, <laughs> but I feel sometimes very powerless at securing that that mission will actually be successful. But Jesus, in the mission he's given to the church, my yard sale can fail, all right? It's not even my yard sale. There's a lot of people working out to it. The, our, our Holmesdale community yard sale can fail, but the truth will not fail. The church will not fail. Jesus Christ will not fail. And we don't have to fail if we will remain in him and keep the unity of God amongst us. And what's beautiful here is as we continue into this prayer, I've always referenced these promises as promises to us as a church, but really in context, everything we've been reading up to this point has all been for the disciples and followers who were present with Jesus at that time. But, but things get exciting for us in verse 20 because Jesus continues with his addition equation, all right? He was praying for the union of the Son and the Father, and then he added the disciples in here. And, and, and read with me in verse 20 who he decides to bring into this equation, this union as well. In verse 20, it's, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, those who are present, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me. And they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me." You're probably picking up on this pattern of communication that Jesus is using in his prayer that is somewhat circular. You start saying, this sounds familiar. This seems repetitive. In essence, Jesus is praying the same prayer and simply adding to it various aspects of life and ministry. He prayed this prayer between the Father and the Son. He prayed this prayer, same prayer, between the Father, the Son, and the disciples, and now he's praying it again and incorporating the church, the future followers, the disciples that would be made from Jesus' very disciples, from the apostles. You know, one beautiful reality that I've mentioned before from the pulpit, but it's worth mentioning again, is that every single one of us, if we had the ability, could trace our salvation experience our coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the fact that someone brought us the truth, we could trace it back to the disciples. The disciples were given this mission, and they started to go out and share it with others, and they made disciples, and then their disciples made disciples. And then 2,000 years later, we have people continuing to make disciples, to continuing to spread the gospel. And so we are brought into the equation. Jesus started his prayer one, by focusing on Father Sonian, 
union. And now we see that the church is being added to the equation. Unity advances Jesus' mission into the future. All right? He's not just praying for the future followers. He's actually presenting a model for advancing his mission into the future. In fact, what we saw here in the verses is that our ability to be effective within this mission is our unity, our union with Jesus. It said there at the end of verse 21 that the Father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you see that? The world believing what we proclaim from God's word as true, being true, is largely based upon our ability to demonstrate the unity found within God. This is not just any unity. The church's unity is established by being in relationship with God. We have to fight for that aspect. Being in communion with God or living in community with God's family, we have been added into God's family through this union an addition that Jesus is doing in his prayer. How are we doing at living united in God's family? We have to ask ourselves this. If this is a, a foundational, central aspect of the mission that Jesus has given us, being effective, how are we doing at fighting and working towards unity in God's family? Living united has significant implications for us personally in accessing the blessings all right, if we want the blessings of Jesus' joy, of his love, living in unity with him is critical in that aspect, but it's also critical for us to experience those blessings as a church body or family. This becomes exponentially important if we looked into the book of Acts. In Acts, we don't see Jesus doing addition. We see Jesus and the Holy Spirit doing multiplication, all right? People are coming to Jesus in the thousands, all right? They're being multiplied uh, through that process. And so it's, it's so important that there's unity established so that what is being multiplied is representing the origin of what Jesus had intended to accomplish. All forms of evangelism ultimately require community. When you think about this, we don't save or proclaim the truth through our own strength, through our own power. The love we look to communicate to the world so that they may know we are gods is not a self-love. It is a love, first and foremost, for God and secondly, towards one another. So ultimately, all forms of evangelism require community. They know us by our love. Uniting the individual Christians and the church in God is at the center of the ability for advancing the very mission that Jesus has given us. In fact, we sabotage the mission that Jesus has given to the church and the disciples when we allow pride, our pride, to creep in and we elevate ourselves, our desires, our ideas, our agenda above that of God and we're willing to sacrifice the unity of his church to do what we want to do, what is right in our own eyes. In fact, the Old Testament book of Judges warns us of the destruction that comes when you do what is right in your own eyes. It simply brings chaos 
That's the model where everyone's truth is their own truth, and there is no unity. There's just division. There's just individualism. There's no community. There's no union. If you want to experience union within your, your relationship with Jesus, within your relationship with others, then you have to surrender your own pride, and you have to be willing to live ultimately as Jesus calls us to live. In fact, we're challenged in Scripture and says, how can we say we love God and hate our brothers or our sisters? How can we say we love God and not live committed to keeping Jesus' bride, the church, unified? One of the greatest clues that we love Jesus Christ is that we love the church Jesus loves. You don't wait for the church to be perfect or easy to love. Jesus didn't wait for us to be perfect or easy to love. He approached us while we were his enemies. And Jesus wants us to learn to commit daily to loving the church he has brought us into with all of his faults, problems, and failures. This does not mean we become complacent with the issues that are present. It means we are actively working to stay in team players together in moving forward the mission and agenda Jesus has given us. It's not simply on Pastor Banks or, 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 or me or any one individual in the church to keep the unity or the multiplication of the mission from advancing. It is on all of us to join ourselves together in God to do this. Unity is a non-negotiable for the church. It is not something we can just give up and believe we can still be effective. In fact, unity becomes exponentially critical, as I mentioned, from Acts. As the church grows and as we grow as a congregation, unity is critical to the success of that growth. We then see this narrative continue as he brings it around circle back to the idea of glory. So he focused on the unity and how unity advances Jesus' mission into the future, but we also see that glory stabilizes Jesus' mission into the future. The glory of God, focusing on the glory of God, helps to stabilize Jesus' mission into the future. What does that look like? Well, in verse 22, it said that the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Once again, he is sharing something within himself with us. That they may be one, that we might be united, even as we are one. In them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. We see this dynamics between love and glory. And Jesus is going to shed more light into this in the next coming verses. But what I want us to start to understand here is that the love unifies us. The love of God unifies us. And when we are united, we bring glory to God. That is why you keep seeing these things revisited. Love, union, and glory. When all of these things are at work, it is accomplishing the very mission that Jesus has sent us to do. See, we are often very vain people seeking our own glory, and that's problematic towards us accomplishing the unity of the church. We want people to praise us. We want people to further our ideas and agendas, as we mentioned. Jesus calls us to set aside our personal preferences for the sake of glorifying the beauty of God's eternal unifying love, that he has purchased us and given us eternal life through himself. That's what he wants us to make much of. 
God's glory stabilizes the church by keeping Jesus and the gospel at the center of what we are doing and what we are fighting for. His glory keeps us from becoming mission drift. See, another beauty of this reality is that John 17 is is building not just for the union, as we mentioned here on earth, but a future union. Not just for the glory of Jesus here on earth, but even for a future glory. The reality for the church is building towards a climactical future glory. What is the end game of redemptive history? The Father will indwell the Son, the Son and and, and the Son will indwell the bride, and the church is brought into the very presence of Jesus to share the love, unity, joy, and glory of God. We are taken from this world and brought into the presence of Jesus. And we see this picking up in verse 24, John 17, verse 24. It says, Father, I desire, Jesus desires, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, this pattern of glory and love and union is continued. Jesus wants the church to one day behold his physical radiance that is only found in his presence. So he prays that the future reunion, for the future reunion of the church. Think about this within the context that we opened up the message within. The son being sent to the front lines sending a letter back to his bride. My return, your return to me, our union again is secured. It was not a forever farewell when we said goodbye. What sweeter union can you imagine than with those you love the most? I don't know how long you might have had to be separated from someone you loved before, or perhaps Someone you love has passed, and they've already gone on to heaven, and you miss them, and you desire to be in their presence. Jesus desires to unite us with him again. And there's glory from this unity that is experienced in Jesus' presence like we can't experience here on earth. So we look forward to that union just like we would look forward to being reunited with that loved one. Our faith in Jesus is not some pipe dream. I hope I will see him again. There are many competing voices for our attention that are constantly promising and often drastically under-delivering. Jesus is not one who, through the gospel, overpromises goodness to his children and underdelivers on it. He gives himself 
and himself is the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive. Why is that so? Because nobody loves better than Jesus. So no one can give better than Jesus gives, and he gives himself. To be reunited with Jesus is greater than being reunited with anyone we could imagine. Anyone, even if it was a famous movie star or a role model or athlete you looked up to, they will always disappoint us. Anything new we can buy will always disappoint us. But Jesus' love is far greater than all other loves. And Jesus wants to put the very love of God that unites the Trinity in us by putting himself in us. This has been the repetitive message that Jesus continues to emphasize. And I think if Jesus repeats this so many times in this one chapter, it's important for us to continually repeat it. And whenever you face trials and challenges and difficulties, come back to a chapter like John 17 and anchor yourself in the very love of Jesus, the very unity found within the Trinity, the hope, the promise of being joined with him. And let his love empower the unity we experience through Jesus' presence, his very presence in us. This is beautiful, and it's portrayed right here in the last verse of chapter 17, or chapter, yeah, chapter 17 in verse 26. It says, that the love with which you have loved me, that the Father has loved the Son, may be in them, all right? He wants that love in his disciples and in the future followers, but it goes on, and I in them, all right? We don't experience the full amount of God's love without inviting Jesus into our life, without the Holy Spirit indwelling us, without his word taking root and transforming our very nature like it did with the disciples. I hope in your life you have been loved well by someone. I hope in your life you have been loved by someone in a way that you could never repay them. You don't have the money, the resources, the time, the energy to give back. All you could do, like a child on Christmas morning, is receive that gift of love. But maybe you've never been loved like that by another human being. You are loved like that by Jesus Christ. All right? And he wants you to experience and know his love. And I would encourage you, if you've never experienced that, that you would cry out. And maybe you have experienced his love before, but you've grown distracted. You've drifted from the beauty of living in union and community with God and with his family. Cry out to him again that his word would reorient your heart back to mission, all right? And that we would be the light to demonstrate the very presence of God amongst us to this world that so desperately needs it, living in broken darkness. Whatever lesser loves you are living for today, whatever you are afraid of losing by committing your life completely to Jesus, I want to challenge you to consider that what if the worst thing death could do is bring you face to face with the very one who has been your source of love and joy? All of a sudden, you start to realize why death 
loses its sting because it is the very means which we are then brought into the presence, physical presence of Jesus. Let us not be so consumed by what we lose in our death here on this earth, but what we will gain, like the Apostle Paul would declare, in being in Christ's presence again. So stop living for these lesser things and start wanting the things Jesus wants. Start longing for Jesus to be in you and let his desires and in his love unify us and bring us the joy and the glory that is shared amongst God transforming everything we believe everything we think everything we feel and everything we do so that's all done for his glory so you can live united in God and in his church actively waiting and anticipating his return so we go back to this big idea let us have great confidence that the love would not let death hold Jesus in the grave is given to us and it will prevail over whatever trials and persecutions and sufferings, over whatever attack the devil may attempt on our own spirit. These attacks will not prevail over the love of God. In fact, as we look at this, the power of this love that unites us, it actually reminded me of our mission. We printed on the front of our bulletin board, and we've actually just added it up to our wall. But this prayer of Jesus reminds us of the very reason why this mission was formed, is that we would create a joyful community because we are filled with Jesus. We are in union with Jesus, a believer to share God's saving grace, the gift he's given us that we could never repay, the gift of love, this whole world. And we do that best when we are living united in God as a church family. Remembering that community is central towards us having effective evangelism. God himself has given us in his word and in his spirit. So let us walk faithfully and united in the love of Jesus. Let us pray.